With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the next chapter with Prim Saripapat. By that point, mentally I was gone. Just, my confidence was shot, you know, no matter how I tried every trick in the book. And by that time, in the book, and by that time, this is the first time I'm ever sharing this, uh, but I really, really developed some, some strong anxiety issues, strong, specifically social anxiety, specifically social anxiety. Hey guys, welcome to the next chapter. I'm your host, Prims Ripapat. This week's guest is a former top 10 draft pick and Stanford graduate who, after spending his first four seasons in the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks, shocked a lot of people when he left and signed a three-year, $20 million deal to play overseas with the Greek Olympiacos. That deal he signed in 2008 marked the largest contract in European basketball history at the time. The player I'm talking about is Josh Childress. Childress, up and in, counting, and a foul! A six-point lead on this 9 nothing run. Josh was born and raised in the, what he calls, nice and quiet parts of Compton, California. The city, he says, gets a bad rap and is often misrepresented by the media. With the support of his parents and two much older brothers... Childress found his way out of Compton, California, as he became a McDonald's All-American in high school and an AP First Team All-American in college. Now, out of the 20-plus athletes and experts I interview in this initial phase of the show, Josh is one of the few guests I had absolutely no relationship with prior to sitting down with him. My buddy, Black Trey, whom some of you may know from various athletic and Count the Dings podcasts, also grew up playing ball in Compton, and he was the one that suggested I reach out to Childress. Black Trey is one of those guys you can just trust because he knows good people and good stories. So I took his advice and cold called Josh, or cold DM'd him, I should say, on Twitter, and we immediately connected. Indeed, it's the power of social media. Anyways, I flew out to California last October so we could do this in person, and we sat down for a few good hours at the Athletics headquarters in downtown San Francisco. Over the course of this conversation, Josh opens up about a number of personal things, including the real story on why he left the Atlanta Hawks, the dark side of being the highest paid basketball player in the world outside the NBA, and his own personal struggles with mental health my panic attack and had my episode, I was out there on the floor. We had just come out of a timeout. I was about to check back in. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a number of NBA players, guys like Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, and Royce White, share their issues with anxiety and depression. And Josh is taking a courageous step forward to contribute to that conversation. 
This marks the first time he's speaking publicly about his own battles with social anxiety. I really hope you enjoy this in-depth conversation with him. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Malik Childress. Hi, Josh. Hello. hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you making the hour drive here (laughs) as the athletic headquarters. So I I know you like shoes and kicks. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, because this is a super casual show and uh, I want to give athletes and whoever come on, like the freedom to feel comfortable. And honestly, I'm a little selfish. I just want to feel comfortable as well. But you were dressed so nicely today. <laughs> and you mentioned that you got a haircut because you, you said that you went to a Stanford game last night and people weren't, didn't recognize you people because you, recognize you cut me. your fro. Yeah, I saw, I actually saw my old coach, Mike Montgomery. He was commentating the game and I walked up and he like, he paused, you know, and, and he didn't really recognize me. I got the glasses, you know, I cut my hair. Um, I cut my hair probably like two months ago. But, um, oh my gosh. you know, it's, it's, uh, it was time. It was time. I mean, nothing has been with you for, since like oh. what, junior year in high, high school? Yeah, about then. And I've had obviously varying lengths uh, yeah. of my hair, but it's been a fro for a long time. So, oh my gosh. So um, that's like 20 years. I know, I know. <laughs> Crazy when you think about it that way. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad I'm catching you at this time because. As a female who has longish hair, or like that is a huge part of your identity. Mm-hmm. It comes with you. Mm-hmm. It defines you. So you must be going through some serious changes for you to cut it. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Not to play what? psychoanalysis, <laughs> but I mean, you Aren't know. Aren't you a psych major anyway? I am. See, so, you see know, what you're doing. Didn't now. you major in sociology? <laughs> I did. So then I you did. understand. You understand the back and forth. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I was... I was going through this period. So I, I lived overseas for a while. Uh, and, you know, finding somebody to like do your hair overseas is always a challenge. Uh, and I went through this period where I was wearing twists a lot. And I was going between the twist and the fro. And my hair just became so long. Like it was, it might, might have been as long as yours. Are you serious? Yeah, it was, it was, you couldn't tell in the fro, but when I got it You're done, like, really? it was, it was long. And so this in-between period, it just looked crazy. And it was just hard to manage, hard to keep up. So over the probably the last six or so months, I was like, I need to cut it. And I just been looking up like I was on Google all the time, looking up haircuts and different styles and this and that. And I finally just did it. So I think about my experience when I when I graduated from college and I first got into television. And um, so that was like, what, 16 years ago. But at the time, they were like, Prince Rip, you're going to have to change your name. It's too ethnic. People aren't going to remember it. You're going to have to change your last name. Your hair is too long. It's too feminine. It's too sexy and sloppy. And they were telling me all these things. You're telling me not to be me. I'm like, that sounds really stupid. So I actually kept my long hair out of almost like rebellion just Mm -hmm. to see how far I could go to Mm -hmm. keep it. And I ended up keeping it for 10 plus years. Well, yeah, I kept my my full name. So I guess- you will, right? Yes, because, you. yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, they, so many people want you to conform to what is on TV, you know, and what other people look like. And it's like, I'm me, you, you. Right. Embrace that. You right. know what I mean? And I think that that's, we're seeing that at a macro level in the country a bit, but that's a whole other conversation. I know, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't consider myself in any way a trailblazer. I think I was just being obnoxiously stubborn. Um, <laughs> but it does take people to 
put their foot down and say, you know what, what I'm doing is okay. I feel like you're a little bit like that. I know you've kind of defined yourself as somebody who thinks outside the box and is wired differently. Um, do you still consider that about yourself? Uh, to an extent. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I think outside that box. I'm just, I'm stubborn too, right? And I have my touch points that, you know, I make sure that I, I focus on and, um, you know, I like to embrace who I am and, uh, you know, I feel very strongly about certain things and, you know, I'm okay with you having a different opinion, uh, you know, and I think that that's what makes, um, you know, people great is, you know, the ability to interact and, and, you know, dialogue on different opinions and, and, you know, different topics without trying to force each other's, you know, views on, on somebody else. So, of what I know of you, you, you seem like somebody who is strong in that sense of, I really, really want to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, you know, for example, I don't think I'm, I don't think I actually have always had the confidence to do that. Like now I do at 38 years old. When I was younger, I was an absolute people pleaser mm-hmm. and I was a perfectionist, but it seems like at a very young age. You were, you always kind of had that, that thread. I guess that the, the- perfect example of that would be when I made my college decision. My two choices came down to Stanford and Kansas. Roy Williams was a coach at Kansas at the time. You know, he really did a great job of recruiting not only me, but my family. My, my brothers, my older brothers and my mom loved him. And I mean, I, I thought he was great. Obviously, he's a Hall of Fame coach and an amazing person. Uh, but, um, you know, when I told my mom I was going to choose Kansas, she started crying. I mean, Stanford. She started crying. Really? Yeah, like crying tears. Because you know? she loved Roy. Yeah, you know, and that was really hard on me. Um, but at the same time, I had to do what was best for me. And I, I just felt that Stanford was a better choice uh, for me. And, you know, it's it's hard to make that decision and deal with it at the age of 17. Uh, but I did. And, you know, obviously, you know, it worked out. To make a decision that is different considering the neighborhood and the area that you came from Compton, but also go against the wishes of your family, especially mama. Like no one wants to upset mm. mama bear. Mm-hmm. That must've been really uh, challenging. One of the biggest things that attracted me to Stanford was uh, the guys that I would be around my teammates. Uh, and I felt 100% comfortable in that environment with them, you know, just a natural fit with those guys. And that's who you spend you know, 95% of your time with, as you know. So that was something that I was really kind of honed in on. Had nothing to do with, you know, Stanford as a university. So it was less about the academics and, and none of that stuff. It was just more about fit. More about fit. So what, what was your mom like? Was she strict, curfew, because of the circumstances, things that you may or may not be exposed to? Or she just... You never really she, had to no? tell me that. I mean, you learn it, right? And, and um, my mom actually worked nights. So, um, you know, that was on me to just go, go to the gym, you know, get my workout in, get my shots up and then come home and finish my homework. Now I had certain things I had to, I had to make sure my homework was done, you know, and, and all that stuff. So I didn't really have time to, you know, go and, and run the streets, if you will, nor did I want to. I mean, mm-hmm. What are your first memories in, in terms of your first exposure to sports? Watching my older brothers play. Basketball? Yeah, play basketball mm-hmm. uh, at the park. Inter- Enterprise Park is the name of the park. Um, so, yeah, I just go up there and watch them playing like men's leagues games and, you know, little tournaments and things like that. I was probably, you know, six or seven. Okay. And when did you start playing? Uh, right around that same time. Um, so I'd be on the other side of the gym. 
And did you play any other sports? You're a volleyball. I tried. Player, you know? I tried playing other sports. <laughs> you're too tall. You're so tall. You're meant. You're just meant to be a basketball player. <laughs> or vol- I know you played volleyball. You're very. It sounds like you were very played, good at volleyball. I played volleyball my senior year of high school. Oh, that so, was okay. Yeah, I, I. You know, basketball. Going through the AAU circuit for all those years, and you know, I. I um, I was fortunate enough to make the McDonald's game. And I just say, you know, let's just try something else. Like something where I'm not like worried about scouts looking at me and recruiting. And the volleyball coach mentioned like he could help me with my vertical, which, which Hooper doesn't want to increase his vertical, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so I just tried it for my senior year and uh, ended up doing all right. That's good. Yeah. What other sports did you try? I tried soccer, football, um, baseball. And how old were I was you? trash school, at all of them. Middle school, high school, when you were uh, middle sports? school, elementary, middle school. Okay. Then I, I, I realized I wasn't very good at any of those, so <laughs> <laughs> I cut that pretty quickly. <laughs> at what point did you realize that basketball could be a future for you? Uh, it was after my sophomore year of high school. I went to the Nike All American Camp and had a really good camp, and that kind of just put me on the national scene for, for recruiting. And, you know, from there, it was at the very minimum, I was going to get a college scholarship. I never really, like, looked at, you know, the NBA as a reality uh, until my junior year of college. I kind of just just tried to, you know, focus in on, you know, the task at hand, um, get to college. And when I was in college, you know, help my team win. And then, you know, my brother started getting hidden up from agents and stuff like that. And that's when I started to think about the NBA. I find it so fascinating. At this point, I've, I've interviewed a number of athletes, and I find it really interesting that some of you guys don't even think mm-hmm. about playing at the professional level until much later in life, mm-hmm. which is very different than today's generation, yeah. where people yeah. are, where kids are like, I'm going to get a scholarship and I'm going to play professionally. And they're saying that's at six years old. I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. So, like, the, <laughs> I mean, you know, hoop, I, I enjoyed hoop, but. You know, uh, there was there was nobody that I knew that played professionally, so I didn't have like a person that I can latch on to and say I want to be him. You but know? did you have did you have doctors? You so my mom was in the medical field, not a doctor, uh, but um, you know I just I saw that, and then um, I I read a book uh, about Ben Carson at the time, and I just thought that it was so cool that a uh, you know African American you know performed a you know the uh, the Siamese twin. Uh, uh, I think it was a yeah, it was a, a the brain. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on what what you call it now. Yeah. But uh, he separated two Siamese twins via via the brain, and it was uh, I just thought it was really cool. So <laughs> I wanted to be like him. So when did you start entertaining options and, and really looking at schools? Junior year, and it's it's funny because my junior year was probably my worst year in high school. From a basketball perspective, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the the influx of attention um, kind of impacted that a bit. Uh, and I, I just didn't know how to handle it. Um, you know, still obviously put up good numbers and all that stuff. But I just if I'm thinking back to, you know, what it was, that was probably my worst year of, of high school uh, from a basketball perspective. And so um, but I was looking then I was, you know, talking, talking to my, with my brothers, talking with my friends. You know, we all tried to have a, a pack to go somewhere together, um, you know, and, and, you know, we talked through that for a while, but, you know, that was when it, it became real. Mm. Yeah, because there was a huge spotlight on you. Getting all of that attention and then also experiencing a dip in your performance, 
did that impact anything later in life? Did that teach you a lesson? Did you, how did you learn from that? I didn't. (laughs) And I've had, I've had situations since where, you know, I didn't um, respond in the way that I think I could have. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting just, you know, when you break it down mentally and you think about, you know, I guess how you could have done things differently, mm-hmm. what caused you to do that or think that way. You know, so in, in high school, that junior year, after that, I realized that that wasn't the year that I like to have. Uh, and, you know, I, I doubled down on my training and my focus and, you know, really tried to kind of like narrow my focus towards, you know, have a great senior year you know, win a a championship and, you know, choose my, my university that I'm going to. My senior year was, was great. And I, I wasn't able to win the championship. I lost in the, in the final, but, you know, I I felt like that was a a good send off for me. Um, But it sounds like you made the adjustments because you had a really good senior year. Yeah. So then why do you say that you didn't handle it or do you didn't learn from it? Fast forward to my first year in Greece. Mm -hmm. Um, My first year over there, like, you know, I signed the largest contract in European basketball history. Uh, and the amount of attention that I got was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled that year on the court, uh, struggled off the court, uh, and kind of became a recluse, if you will. I just stayed in my house and, you know, played. I had this amazing house, you know, not too far from the beach in Athens. And I was in the house all day. Mm-hmm. I just I couldn't deal with the, the scrutiny, the pressure that summer. Came back, I doubled down on my training, really focused in on everything and, and had a much better year my second year over there. You know, had I learned kind of how to approach that the first year, mm. you know, I may have felt a bit better about, you know, my time in Europe. Man, I, I, I think it's it's so easy to look back and say, well, I could have handled it better. But I mean, you made the adjustments at 17 years old. And then by the time you went to Greece, you were how old? You were in your mid-20s? Yeah, mid-20s. That's still young. You know, yeah, And most people course. don't make those adjustments within a year. How did you know that was the right decision for you to go to Stanford? From a social perspective, I knew. Um, when I went on my visit to Kansas, um, you know, it was a significant amount of like drinking, partying. The college life, right? And I don't drink. And I've never drank in my life. Really? I have not. And I had an amazing time at Stanford on my visit there and was not offered a sip of alcohol. You know, I went on my five recruiting trip and everybody <laughs> offered me everything. <laughs> it was just it was just a feel. And I mean obviously that was a major uh, a major impact on the decision, but you know, I had a, a great time. I was you know, I laughed more than I ever laughed before in my life. And, you know, just a great group of people. The alcohol wasn't a part of it, you know. And so um, that was a big one. Mm-hmm. And then from a, from a basketball perspective, I knew that I'd, I'd have the opportunity to grow into who I could become at Stanford a bit, a bit better. Um, you know, Kansas is a great program and Roy is a great coach. Uh, but year after year, they're getting two and three McDonald's All-Americans. And, you know, you're either performing or you're not. And if you're not, you know, you can get pushed down that bench. And not that I didn't, uh, I like competition, but at the same time. You want to be able to play. I want to be able to play and put myself in a position, you know, to better myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was, that was it. 
did you have any challenges in the transition to to Stanford? Because, you know, being a division one student athlete, especially at a highly academic institution is Mm. It's not easy. No, not, no, not for me. It wasn't. Not, at all. not for me. It wasn't. And and Coach Montgomery was very much of the mindset that you're smart enough to get in here, you're smart enough to figure it out. Right. So there was not a ton of, you know, we didn't have study hall, we didn't have you know stuff that a lot of the other there was no babysitting, mm-hmm. so you had to just figure things out, and you know that takes an adjustment period. You know, me coming from where I came from, from you know inner city, you know Palo Alto, which isn't exactly you know, the most ethnically diverse, you know, place in the country. I was, it was a bit of a culture shock there, Uh, but you know, you make it work. That's what's fun about transitions. And that's why I created this show is because I feel like transitions are the hardest thing in life because it means having to adjust and going from the unknown to something that's really unfamiliar. I went to a high school where, um, you know, I always did pretty well academically and, you know, I could, I could kind of, finagle my way through getting good grades. And I remember my first class at Stanford, like we did a did like a book analysis. They had all these abstract ideas and they were, you know, picking apart different words and the meanings and it's like I just read the story. What the heck, you know what I mean? Yeah, yes, I do. And I that know. was like a big wake up call. It's <laughs> like I gotta get a I gotta figure this out because this is I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. But um yeah, that and then, you know, the schedule of, you know, being a college athlete, you know, and people, you know, they say student athlete, but it's flipped. Mm. And you know that, too. You know, you're athlete student, 6 a.m. weights or 7 a.m. weights and, you know, practice and film and all that stuff while trying to, you know, balance, you know, class and sleep and social life and all that. So, um, yeah, that first that first quarter, first two quarters was tough. I thought my struggles in college as a student athlete were just my own. And to hear from so many other athletes who played at a much higher level than I did, and to hear people saying they almost quit, they almost flunked out, they almost transferred, a coach, they had an issue with a coach, a coach told them that I don't want you, if I were um, the original coach, I wouldn't have recruited you and said that to an athlete before he even stepped foot on, on campus. You know, did you have any of those moments or were, was the freshman year your, your toughest? I started out my freshman year doing well. And then, you know, for whatever reason, coach decided to, to you know, kind of mess with my playing time a bit. You know, that was difficult, right? You go from being the man, being McDonald's All-American, mm-hmm. playing big minutes as a freshman, and then not. What happened? What did I do? You know, and going through that process was tough. Coaches are brutal, man. I mean, oh, yeah. coaches are brutal. Like, yeah. I, I often think how many how many careers were ruined because of a coach. Hmm. Probably a ton. You know, they know that they control your destiny, and some guys just take advantage of that. You went through so much stuff. A lot of your like powerful transitioning. So much stuff happened in the NBA, and, and knowing a little bit more about like how, why you decided to go to Stanford and feeling safe in that community. Mm-hmm. And now you're, you go to the NBA and like, it's got to feel like the wild, wild west. Everybody's balling. Everybody's competing. Everybody's drinking. Everybody's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, what was that? So you leave after three years from Stanford. So what was that transition like? Fun. Was it? <laughs> it, was. Really? it was. It was fun. It was. So it wasn't overwhelming. Uh, it was overwhelming early um, just because of uh, the coach that I had and not saying it in a negative way. He was just 
old school. Coach Mike Woodson, uh, he came from Indiana, you know, under the Bobby Knight regime. Mm -hmm. And then he coached in the league under uh, Larry Brown. And so, you know, it was very much a, a, a vibe in the locker room and it's in the organization that, like, you know, rookies pay their dues. And mm -hmm. so I remember to this day there are times where, you know, all the veteran guys would have the day off and, you know, it'd be the four four rookies, four or five rookies, and we'd be in there running three-man weave, you know, just all the drills that you would run with a full squad. So this is supposed to be your day off during the week? This was their day off. It wasn't our day off. So you just didn't get a day off during the week? We didn't get a ton of days off. You know, it was just rookies pay their dues, and, you know, rookies got to learn. You don't have to say to that, but I'll say it. That's bad. No. <laughs> I'll say it's cool. So, so that yeah. was... That was your rookie. That was our that was our rookie year. Yeah. And so myself, Josh Smith, um, Royal Ivy, Dante Smith, um, we just we rolled with it, you know, and we just, you know, kept grinding and um, you know, we obviously got better over the year. Uh, but that was our introduction. Yeah, we got more practice. Well, yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> you trained 365 days out of the year versus uh, 250. So yeah, of course. It was, it was fun. It was a fun, uh, fun initial year. We were terrible as a team. I think we won like 13 games, which was like tied a record for one of the worst records in the league. Um, but that's where I, I met Al. The, the, the moment I knew Al was a good dude. So we had just had a, I mean, we lost in Indiana and it was a bad loss. And um, we had another veteran on the team that was mad that, you know, Coach Woodson has, had decided to play the rookies, you know, significant minutes and so we lost we were in the locker room everybody's getting changed dressed whatever and this guy is over in the corner just just going off about how terrible this is and he should be getting playing time and yada 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 and al stood up butt naked <laughs> and just started going in on him really you know you should embrace him you should you should you know you should help them that's your job to help them this 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 you know, and just going at the dude. And so they were sitting there arguing, but two butt naked grown men. <laughs> but that was Al sticking up for us. And he didn't have to, and he did. And, you know, from that point on, I was like, this, this is a stand-up dude. dude, man. It's my dude. So you said that, you know, your your junior year in high school, you had a lot of pressure and, and then going to Greece. But what about being drafted, being a top 10 draft pick. Did you feel any pressure there or were you? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Out of all the moments through, throughout your career, where did that rank being a rookie and, and being dra drafted, what, six, six overall? Mm -hmm. And you're the highest pick out of Stanford till this day. Where did that rank in terms of feeling the pressure? Uh, top three. Yeah. 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 For sure. Uh, was it one? No. What was number one? Was it Greece? Greece was number one. And what was your second one in high school? Maybe that might be the league. Might be number two. Okay. Yeah. It's it's the nature of the business, but you manage it kind of like how everybody else does. You go out, you have fun, you you, you party, you're traveling, you you know, you just dealing. You know, you're not really a, like I didn't actively go and seek help or anything. I was just trying to survive, trying to. You have good games, you have bad games. You try to hold on to the good games as much as you can. But yeah, you just try and survive. And like, um, you know, I found myself, you know, spending more time with family, um, you know, but you also have your coping mechanisms. Like, 
I used to shop a lot or, mm. you know, what have you. I just, guys deal with it in different ways. Everybody, everybody has a coping mechanism. And yeah. it, it, it always, pressure always manifests itself in some way. This yeah. is not characteristic of athletes or anyway, like across the board. If you are listening right now and you have something that you're dealing with, it is manifesting somehow. Absolutely. And okay, I, first I have money too. Like, right. You know, that, that definitely added to it, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that going out and, and just, just partying and, you know, all that stuff. But you didn't drink or you don't, so you, do, you would go out and party still and but just not drink. Yeah, just not drink. I mean, another part of that too is we were so bad as a team <laughs> that, you know, that also took some of the pressure off. We got to play, we got to play big minutes. Uh, you know, we developed a relationship. And so as the year went on, you know, I feel like I got better and better. Um, I think I finished that year. I didn't make the, the, the rookie team, the rookie game, but I finished that year like third and, and double doubles behind, you know, two centers. Like I, I felt like I, you know, I was on track to have finish the year strong, but have a good second year. So you're in Atlanta for about four years. Four years. Then comes the decision where you stay in America or you go overseas. I was just like, you know, doing some research and there was this one interview that you did with, with PTI and they, everybody was hounding you about why you decided to go to Greece instead of staying here domestically. Why in fact did you do this? Was it purely for financial considerations or is there more to it than that? Um, it was a little more to it than that. I think that, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the financial reasons come into play. But, um, you know, it, it came down to me uh, um, making a decision based on, on what I felt was right. I mean, uh, I, I went through the process of, of, of restricted free agency. Um, didn't like my options. Uh, and, uh, you know, Atlanta was kind of drag, dragging their feet. So um, I made a move across uh, to Greece. Looking back. Why did you Why did you decide to go over to go? So, if you're familiar with the the free agency process in NBA, you have unrestricted and restricted free agents. So, at that time, I was a restricted free agent. Now, I had spent the last four years, you know, developing myself in Atlanta into you know a big part of that organization and that team. You know, I had been in the running for six man of the year for a couple of years, and you know, really was I felt like a you know a, a strong part of the core of the team. My fourth year, my before my, my fourth year, you know, that summer, uh, myself and Josh Smith were trying to get, you know, contract extensions. And the current GM at the time, Billy Knight, he told me, you know, you stay healthy this fourth year. We'll make sure we get you done. Mm-hmm. You know, get your thing, get your thing sorted. Cool. So, you know, I really locked in on, um, you know, my body, eating right. You know, I went and saw, um, I flew up to Nike, because I had foot issues, uh, flew up to Nike. They did an analysis on my feet, got me in the right shoes. So I made sure, you know, for that year, I wouldn't have any foot issues. Orthotics, all that thing was perfect. Um, that fourth year hits, have a good year. We make the playoffs for the first time in like 20 years. Mm-hmm. City's rocking. You know, we, we take Boston to game seven uh, in, you know, in the first round. They ended up winning the title that year. But great year. Mm-hmm. Then they fire Billy. For what reason? I don't know. Um, then a new guy comes in and essentially is like, test the market. You know, we want you to go out and, you know, see what, what, what you come back with. 
No, I understand that that's just part of this part for the course, right? For, for the agency process. So the writing was on the wall a little bit. But no, it was or, more so for me, it was more so a slap in the face from the perspective of, you know, I've, I've poured four years into this organization, you know, any, obviously on the court stuff is on the court, but all the community engagement, anything you guys have ever needed of me, you know, I was always the guy that was leaned on to do like the read to achieve and like all the, like all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then now this new guy comes in that I have no relationship with and, you know, it's just like, yeah, go test the market. So it, it, you know, it was a little bit of a, a a jab. Mm -hmm. And so I did, and I went out and my agent, you know, we found a couple of teams that were interested in doing sign and trades. Uh, One of them being, San Antonio Spurs. Now, outside of the Bulls as a kid, the Spurs were my next favorite team. I just love Tim Duncan. I love how, I mean, he's obviously a Hall of Fame player, but, you know, he just was no nonsense and just surgical on the court. And I always admired their approach to the game. So I met with Coach Popovich. He told me what he thought, you know, kind of the, the role that, that he, he thought I would fill. And basically I was going to be there next version of Bruce Bowen. So, mm. you know, kind of develop into a, a you know, defender, utility player, but just, you know, really kind of hone in on being a corner three-point shooter and add value in other areas. But but that was a team that I, you know, that was the team yeah. at the time too, right? And so, um, you know, they shot that deal down. Atlanta did. They shot it down. And so then that just added more fuel to the fire for me. And so then out of the blue, I get this offer from Greece. My market at that time was like, I was a mid-level, mid-level guy. So it was like a five-year, $33 million deal. And I was going to make that over there in three years. I took a serious look at the deal. Um, and then they flew me over. Uh, and it was summer in Athens. I was like, oh, it's not too bad, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> so I came back. I spoke with, with um, you know, with the Hawks. I met with one of the owners of the Hawks. You know, we talked through it. I had developed a relationship with him over the years. You know, everybody kind of cautioned me against doing it. From the te- from the Hawks from or the just Hawks, like, okay. From the Hawks. But, you know, I do what I do. You know, <laughs> like, so, so I told them this was the offer. There was no, they didn't like speed up their process at all. But they ended, did they not counter or did they, did they? No. Oh. So at the end of the day, I didn't have a contract offer from them. So I went to Greece. Olympiacos, the team you're going to be joining, says they signed you because they want to win the European League Championship. All right, you grew up dreaming of winning the NBA Championship. How much can winning the Euro League Championship mean to you, Josh? It means a lot. It means a lot now. I mean, I'm a part of that team, and uh, um, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to, to try to help us uh, win. Um, teams can hold a guy hostage until the market dries up. And then you have to settle for what they're going to give you. Now, who knows what they would have given me? I don't know. But I don't know. So was that a weird dynamic with people questioning you why you made that decision and people had no idea about the story behind everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the fans in Atlanta hated me. I mean, it was like, why would you leave? We did this. But it was like, I wanted to be there. You know, I, I really, truly did. Um, you know, and, and it was more hurtful because of the fact that we went from 13 to 26 to, you know, I think 40 something or high thirties to playoffs, you know, in a span of four years. And 
you know, you fire the guy that put the team together and you, you know, you bring in this new guy who, for what? If we hadn't been winning and we hadn't made the playoffs and all that, like, I understand you got to make changes. You got to, you know, do what you got to do. But we had a good, solid core group of guys, you know, myself, Joe Johnson, Josh Smith, Marvin Williams, Mike Bibby was on the squad at that time. Um, Zaza Pachulia. We had a good, a good unit. Why? Why break that up? So that this is around 2008 yeah. when you when you move over to Greece, yeah. and then and then little does anyone know you go over there, you're like Michael Jordan. Just- <laughs> <laughs> I mean- um, well, well, a lot of the attention was more so because of the contract. You know that was that was the the big deal, and the fact that it was such a, a big deal here. Here's mm-hmm. a guy who's you know leaving in the prime of his career to go, you know, go overseas. And, um, you know, this is obviously before social media was really big. You had MySpace, you know, which was like the, the, the popping thing back then. I love it, <laughs> But, um, yeah, and so I'd always been able to kind of, I guess, still remain private to an extent. You know, I've, I've always been a private person and, and I've always um, liked to kind of, you know, kind of stay in the shadows a bit. And so... Um, I'm on Front Street, front and center over there every day, every night. I'm walking the streets. I got, you know, my team's fans, other team's fans, you know, stopping me, saying stuff. It was just for for an introverted person, it was a it was really really difficult to deal with. Do you think there would have been that much of attention if your contract wasn't that big? No, not at all. It was because it was the biggest contract in European history. That's got to be a weird experience when, like, your your personal information is out there. I know it happens it. all the time with athletes, it. and I think that media and, and fans, we take it for granted, and it becomes part of the business and information, but from a personal perspective. And I, like, I want to highlight this because it's something that we don't talk about. But it's like everybody knows how much you make. It's the worst. The absolute worst. And it's like, it's a, a true invasion of privacy, you know? And like, I guarantee you, if I walked into an office and asked somebody how much money they make, what's their salary, you know, they would look at me like I was crazy. Yeah. You know? And yet, you know how much I make. Right. It just, it, it, it sucks, you know, on so many levels. Um, I wish it could change, but it won't. Um, but yeah, it's just, a something that, you know, is, is always going to be an issue for professional athletes just because, you know, it just, the, the other side of it and the negativity it brings to guys, you know, is not ideal. When you talk about the negative negativity with, with guys, it sounds, it sounds like you, you've seen it impact people in certain Myself too. I mean, I say that to say, you know. You got family, friends, um, you have, uh, you know, people who try to set people up, you know, you have all those, those kind of parts of it. And they're like, well, I know what you're making, you know, or, um, you know, I know you can pay me because, you know, I know, you know, and it's that side of it that you you have to deal with as well. We simplify the athlete, pro athlete experience as fame, money, resources, opportunity, playing a game who doesn't love that but there's a lot of complexities that that Mm. come with this lifestyle 
And a lot of it has to do with your information, your financial information is out there. And now we have people coming out of the woodwork and reaching out to you because they know what you have. Mm -hmm. And that must be, uh, that must be disconcerting and confusing because you don't know who you can trust and, and overwhelming. Just, right. Yeah. It, it, it Especially is. if you're an introvert. Yeah. And you know, you're dealing with, you know, financial advisors who take advantage, agents who take advantage, um, you know, family and friends who expect you to, you know, foot the bill for everything. Um, you know, women, um, uh, you know, you start to go down the list, you know, potential people who are trying to get you to invest in things. And yeah, it's just, it's tough to navigate, especially as, as a young guy who, um, you know, is coming into a situation where you probably didn't have much money and your, your parents probably aren't, you know, incredibly financially literate. Yeah. I mean, to navigate that is, is really difficult. I've known many, many guys who, you know, are making good money, but are living check to check. You know, it's tough to go from, you know, you're making two, three, five, ten, fifteen million dollars a year to nothing. And, and, you know, you throw in, you know, uh, a child or, you know, a baby mom, you throw in a divorce, you throw in, you know, family, friends, a couple agent bad fees. agent fees, a couple bad investments. Yep. You know, it, it could happen. And, it happens and all the it time. It happens all the time. But people don't understand that because they haven't lived it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, you look at lottery winners. Oh yeah. A large majority of them go broke within the first few years. They blow through it and like, yeah. And yeah. you know, nobody ever says, oh, "Look at those dumb lottery winners." You know, let's look at the dumb athletes. You know, how could they? How could they blow that money? It's just a lack of financial literacy, and you know, we don't learn that in in school. You know, we learn, you know. Pythagorean theorem and acute angles, you know, and like stuff that has, has no impact on my everyday life, but we don't learn anything about taxes or investing or budgeting or any of that stuff or relationships or relationships or, you know, any, any of that. Two to three of the most important things to be able to highly function in life. And yet we don't learn that in school. So when you have all of this attention and your stuff is out there and then the wall just has to go up and, I, and it did because you said that you you just hung out in your house all the time yeah it did because you're, you're kind of easy to spot in a crowd <laughs> especially you, when i have my hair too <laughs> yeah now, maybe with a haircut you might be a little, <laughs> little bit now but yeah i mean you must have just wanted to to hide yeah and i did i hid for a year and then part of that too so that that same year my, my dad passed away and that added to me hiding and to the to difficulty of, of the season and, you know, feeling guilty and, and, you know, not being here when it happened and all that stuff. And so, you know, it was kind of all that stuff combined really made it a difficult year. Right, because he was back here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but it must have been hard because you were overseas. Yeah, it was. It was. Did you, was that a thought process of... This must have happened for a reason, or, or maybe I shouldn't have gone overseas, or it was. No, I mean it was. You know, I, I think obviously I wish he was still here, um, but you know it's a part of life, and this is a part of the decisions that he made. You know, as as a man, I felt guilty from the perspective that you know he got in a, a car accident, but he had been drinking, and as 
the reason I, I never never drink. Um, but part of that was, you know, had he not been drinking, maybe he doesn't get into an accident. Uh, but my guilt came from the fact that after the accident, and it was a pretty rough accident, um, I didn't come home to see him. He had had surgery and he was, you know, on the road to recovery. So I thought, okay, great. I'll, you know, I'll get home to see him when, you know, when my season's over. And then uh, pneumonia set in and he passed. And so then that was really, really rough to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you add that with the stress of a season and all the other things that, you know, you have yeah. going on. And, you know, I think as athletes, people expect us to be superheroes and just play through it because we're getting paid a lot of money. Uh, but that's not the case. That was rough. And how long did it take you to get through that? I mean, what happened in the, the next upcoming? Because it sounds like that. <laughs> It sounds like, you know, listening to, as I'm putting together your your journey, that sounds yeah. like it was probably one of the toughest moments yeah. in your life. Yeah, it was. And that then created like a, a little bit of a, I'll say a downward spiral is probably too strong of a term, but um, there was definitely a little bit of a, a spiral. After that happened, I came home for the funeral, spent some time here and then went back you know, and finished the season. I came home that year, like I, I mentioned before, it was not a great year for me uh, from a basketball perspective. I came home, I like didn't tell anybody where I lived. You know, I, I kind of stayed away from everybody really and just kind of lived in the gym and, you know, was training hard and was really kind of locked in on that. Uh, got over there and had a much better year, but I was also... Um, incredibly angry all the time and I was like cussing out my coaches just on edge a lot Mm -hmm. and that's not really my personality Um, you know and that was kind of I think just the the manifestation of everything that had been happening Um, you know through that year I also um, well right after my dad passed I went on like a, a spending spree I was of this mentality that like you know you can't take it with you you know life can be going in an instant on that end of my life, I was doing that. On the other end, I was, you know, angry and just coping, you know, the best I could. Following that, I was like, I need to get back home. So the year finished, uh, I ended up signing a five-year deal with the Phoenix Suns um, and was really excited about the chance to kind of be, be home, be closer to family, all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, Phoenix ended up being probably like the – the worst part of my career, <laughs> the worst part of my career, you know, and I say that um, laughing, but it, it really, I mean, that, that was the demise of my NBA career. And how so? Uh, I think, you know, I went into a situation anticipating fitting in better to a team than it, I did. Um, you know, I, I took, the opportunity and the contract and all that stuff. And it was like, okay, great. I'm, I'm home for five years. I got this, 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 you know, and, and I w- went to a team that like, I just didn't fit on very well uh, from a playing perspective. Like the, the team as a, as a whole was great. The guys are great. You know, you have some hall of fame guys, but also just some quality, genuine dudes. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I've always, my, my entire career, I was a slasher. I was, you know, I get into the lane, I get fast breaks, uh, you know, 
I do that, and then I get into a team where it's like, all right, cool, we need you to sit in the corner. I didn't do that very well. Then it just kind of wore on me and wore on me and wore on me. My confidence, you know, continued to deteriorate. And that was the first time in my career I didn't play, didn't play much. Um, now, granted, I was I was kind of backing up Grant Hill, you know, mm-hmm. who was an amazing player and former, former or <laughs> fellow Duke, yeah. Duke of Blue Devil. But, um, you know, I was in, just in a situation where, I said, first time I didn't play, and I took it hard. And I just <laughs> I felt like I could just never really get back over the hump uh, mentally being there. And, yeah, it was just a, a rough, rough two years for me. And, I, you know, you think about everything, you know, everything that I yeah. kind of had going on. And then this happens. And, yeah, I just I just couldn't recover. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot because it's, you know, you have the Atlanta situation. You feel a little slighted there, a little burned. You're like, OK, so I'm going to go overseas. And then you've got the pressure. And then you have the personal situation happen. And then maybe, you know, you decide to come back to America partially because of that. And mm-hmm. then, and then that's a tough basketball situation. I don't know. How did you, how did you handle, how did you recover from it? Have you recovered from it? Yeah. I mean, I, so I was there two years uh, and then they ended up amnestying me. Um, and then I signed a deal that next year in, in Brooklyn by that point, mentally, I was gone. Like, I just, I mean, my confidence was shot, you know, no matter how. I tried every trick in the book. And by that time, and this is the first time I'm ever sharing this, um, but I really, really um, developed some some strong anxiety issues, uh, specifically social anxiety. And so even being on the court for me was a trigger. It was a major trigger, actually. Um you know, and I, I just, I really struggled with that. Uh, and I, I fought the medication route. I really wanted to find a way to like, you know, deal with it naturally and kind of get through it. Um, you know, I'm really, as a side note, I'm really happy that guys are coming to speak out about mental health in the league right now. I mean, I know Kevin Love is doing it. Uh, DeMar DeRozan is doing it, and, you know, a few other guys. Uh, but, you know, at that time, I really, really wish I would have had, you know, someone to talk to or an outlet about that. Um, and not not because I was you know, probably still be in the NBA, but more so because I needed help, you know. And and then as as an athlete, as you know, kind of like the head of my household, like where do I go for help? You know, um, you know, people don't f- still fully comprehend the difficulty of dealing with mental health, you know, and it's still kind of viewed as like, all right, just don't be depressed or. Don't be anxious. Like, why is, you know, anybody who's dealt with it knows that that's, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. After Brooklyn, uh, I ended up going back to Stanford. So yeah. I said, you know what, I'm going to go finish my degree. You know, if if this is it, it's been a good run. You know, I, it, hasn't, it didn't finish the way I would like. I would have liked it to finish, but, you know, I'll, I'll be all right. Right. I'm, I'll make make my way. Um, so I went back to Stanford, went to finish my degree. And in that time, and it's amazing, by the way, when you go back to school, like how much better you are at it. I don't know if so you know. <laughs> I care so much more and you're able to process oh information differently. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, I, you know, I, I took I like know, the bare minimum in, in undergrad. Like I was yeah. taking like 20 units in a, in a quarter and like I was crushing it. But anyway, 
So finished my degree, but in that time I was um, I was hooping with the team, and I was like, I can still play, man. All the crap that kind of went with you know the business side of basketball for me over the last few years had gone out the window, and I was just in the gym hooping with you know some young guys and, and was enjoying it. After that, I went to Australia. So and that's that's that how was you that was the transition. It was like yeah. it was like you know, all right, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna get my degree. You know, kind of focusing on this next phase of my life, and then being in the gym again with the, the Stanford team. It resparked. It resparked the, the the love of the game. I want to go back and and talk about what you shared, and thank you for for sharing mm-hmm. that. And I think you know when we were talking about the essence of the show, and and even though the premise of my show is, is talking about life transition, the thing that I've learned in talking to other psychologists and sports psychologists. And I think it's important for everybody to know is that everybody thinks that mental health has to do with mental disorders and illnesses and psychoses, and it's not. It's it's happiness and well-being and high performing and functioning and also on the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And we all live on one place of the spectrum mm-hmm. and we all go up and down. So, like, that's 100 percent my my message right now. Um, so. With the with social anxiety, and now that you have the opportunity to to share with people about what that is, so how does it manifest itself, and and what are some of the symptoms? Crippling. I mean, to be quite quite blunt about it, um, you know, I, I vividly remember moments where, you know, I'd be in the game on the court, and you know, I'd go to shoot a shot, and I was so. I mean, my body was just locked up or like, I mean, I, I can't remember how many times I airballed that year. Like it was just, it was, you know, I, I was so nervous all the time. And I, I felt like the entire planet was, you know, watching me that year. I ended up like not shooting any free throws that entire year because I was so nervous about going to the free throw line and having everybody look at me. The crippling nature of, of what I was dealing with you know, obviously it was all mental. There may have been some physical, you know, maybe some imbalances, you know, in my body. Yeah, I just, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake it. And I, I, I tried, I tried, I tried seeing different people here and there. You know, I, I tried. Did you go to a psychologist, therapist? Yeah, Can't I they? did. I did. Um, and, and nobody was able to help you? Really? Uh, it made me think about how strong and powerful my mind is. That, like, I could... I could create this whole scenario, something that I just had a really difficult time shaking, you know, which then impacted my, my entire being, if you will. Did somebody tell you the difference between an anxiety attack and disorder versus social anxiety? I just like do research. I looked it up online and, and I mean, I had anxiety attacks, um, you know, and, and I dealt with that, you know, the best I could, but I was just always nervous about medicating just because I feel like, you know, you get dependent on that and then, then what, you know? So I, I, I try to, to manage, um, you know, and try to kind of get through it at the end of the day, like from a basketball perspective, it didn't really work, but you know, I feel like I've come through it and am better for it, um, now, uh, versus, you know, if I would have been, you know, taking pills as, as a way to, to get through it. So. 
just several days ago, uh, a player revealed for the first time to publicly that that he dealt with anxiety attacks as well while he while he was playing. Mm. Um, and it's a it's a really big issue. I just visited with Dr. Parham, Dr. William Parham, who's the new mental health director for the MBPA, and I told him I, I said I, I don't want to be ignorant and say that any sport deals with different pressures or there's certain symptoms or situations that are characteristic of each sport, but it seems like for some reason, basketball, NBA players, there's just a lot of issues with anxiety. Mm. I, and I said, I don't know why. And I asked him if, if he, in his research, if he has noticed any differences, but he said, not necessarily, but he certainly said that culture structure, that all impacts everything. Do you, is there something about, about basketball and the nature, the traveling, the the number of games, longer season mm. versus any other sport? The culture of, of the league is not the culprit. Let's say, if we're in, for example, if you're a football player, you know, while everybody is watching it, you also still have a helmet that, you know, and ten other, ten other teammates out there. Right. And, you know, basketball, you have, you know, four of the guys. But culturally, I don't think it's an issue. I think it's just the pressure of, of performance, financial component of it. I think the media uh, and fans, I would venture to say that probably most of the guys that deal with it are also probably a bit more analytical. Yes. Um, you know, uh, maybe a little yeah, more cerebral, maybe a little more introverted. Um, you know, who, you know, just sit and think about stuff, you know, and it just, it becomes a, you know, a snowball effect where, you know, they're then thinking about everything and the wrong things and, you know, they can't shake it. These discussions, no one has answers to, but they're important discussions to have. We can become more understanding and compassionate and also we can do something about it. Mm. If DeMar comes out and then Kevin Love and they're, there's slight differences, you know. Kevin Love um, talked about his his panic attacks during the postseason, and Demar Derozan talked about his depression. And then we had the situation with Royce White, and then an NBA player that admitted to having um, an anxiety attack, but he didn't end up getting help either. Why not? Well, you know, part of it is is who do you go to? You know, you you go and 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 this is. This kind of gets back into the, the nature of professional sports. If you go to your team and say, hey, I'm dealing with something. I really need some help. They may help you. They may not. But then they're going to utilize that against you when it's contract time. You can't go there. You know, most of the time, you know, you probably can't go to family for it because not everybody's family understands the nature of, of mental health. And, you know. And also they might be a part of the problem. And they might be. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, you could potentially go to your agent, maybe, um, you know, maybe they could help. But, you know, there aren't a ton of people that you can reach out to now. You know, you can try and find somebody yourself. Um, you know, maybe that's the way to go. But then you, you know, you're trying to find a needle in the haystack, and, you know, figure out who who can help you through this issue. Um, you know, so I think it's amazing that the NBA is now implementing this program. You know, it gives guys a safe place to go 
you know, and get help. I really, really wish it was around when I was when I was in the league. It's something that I think as more and more guys like Kevin and Demar, you know, come and speak about, come out and speak about. You know, you start to see that you know there are guys that are at the highest level that deal with it. You know, so maybe it is more comfortable, to, you know, to for, for people to come out and, and have those discussions. But you know, until you know, athletes and specifically younger athletes can find that that place of, of comfort and, and trust, um, you know, it'll still be a, a major issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, my assumption is that, you know, if you went to your coach about it, you know, they'd probably just tell you to stop being a punk and toughen up. And I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's how, that's how it goes. So, um, I yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough space, but it's also, you know, a space that I think there's a lot of room for improvement and, you know, hopefully more and more people come out and speak about it and, and are able to, you know, make that change. Where are you with in terms of experiencing any more attacks? Did it just yeah. happen a couple times? Did it, it's it... something that I think you, you deal with, on a, you know, over the course of your life. I'm, I'm a lot better now um, and obviously not playing helps, but that wasn't the the, the cause for it to, to you know kind of dissipate it as it has, um, but it's learning more about myself, learning what triggers it, learning how I can you know try and implement things to you know if not remove I guess minimize you know those thoughts uh, and also just trying not to take myself too seriously. You know we get caught up in trying to be perfect a lot, mm-hmm. and you know social media has definitely impacted that in a negative way you know everybody on social media is living their best life yeah and it's like hashtag blessed mm, are you no. really yeah, probably, <laughs> probably yeah. not uh but you know kind of sifting through all the junk and just kind of focusing on like what really matters family friends you know you know what you're passionate about first trigger is like public speaking mm-hmm. you know so being like being on a stage um like that it was really tough for me. Um, and that's a tough thing for a lot of people. But uh, well, that carried over for me onto the court. So, like, when I was, like, the center of attention to an extent, you know, um, you know, you just, I just get a little tense or whatever. So I had to go into games, uh, specifically when I was in Australia and, and when I was in Japan, just making sure that I understood, like, win or lose, good or bad, I'm still me. I still have a family that loves me. Um you know, and, and I started actually before every game, I started writing down um, the things that I was thankful for and, um, you know, my goals for the game. Um, 99% of the time, it had nothing to do with basketball. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, about just being in the moment and enjoying, you know, the fact that I'm able to do this still, you know, and do it at a high level, um, you know, and just trying to stay healthy through it all and, and all that. So at the end of the day, um, you know, sounds a bit morbid, but nobody's going to survive it anyway. So why stress? You know, like, I mean, when you really, when you really kind of break it down, um, you know, just enjoy it. Yeah. So I feel like that's a Compton in you coming out. <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's a, that's a very direct way of looking at things and very uh, rational, but thank you for sharing yeah. all of that. What are you doing these days? <laughs> what am I doing? I've been heavily involved in, you know, kind of investing in a bunch of different things over the years. 
uh, and I've kind of narrowed that focus down on the real estate. Myself and my former college teammate and roommate, uh, his name is Justin Davis, who founded a company called Landspire, the Landspire Group. What we've done, or what we're trying to do, is to go into communities of color uh, and under-resourced communities, if you will, and impact change. So doing that through real estate, investing in development. Um, and, you know, you hear the term gentrification a lot um, these days. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're able to go into these communities and empower the residents and the community stakeholders to, um, you know, be able to take advantage of, you know, better opportunities, better facilities, better housing, um, you know, and just uplift those communities. So um, it's been my, po- my, my passion and my focus for the last year or so. Mm. Uh, and that's all just kind of coming about now. I mean, you're going to be fine. You're, you're a smart, smart guy. Uh, you got your degree. Um, you're fairly smart. Went to Stanford. <laughs> I mean, just, just a little I'm bit. I'm smart sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. You're going to be, you're going to be okay. Did you get a chance to, to close it out yourself? Did you yeah. get a chance to? What? This April. I was in Japan. Okay. So I played this, this year in Japan, um, and yeah, it was the last game of the season, and I was just like, well, let me back up, because yeah. I had another last game that I thought was my last game, um, which was last year. So there was a there's a team that came over from Israel, and they play in the NBA games, mm. you know, the preseason. And so uh, I was like, you know what, if I'm done this year, I want to go out like on an NBA court. So where I started my career, mm-hmm. in my pro career, I'm gonna finish there. And so we went out and we played the uh, we played the Sacramento Kings, and had a great game. Like yeah. I, like I was carefree, I didn't you know care about anything. Did anybody know it was your last game? Like had you talked about it? Did no. you? Of course, with your personality, you're not yeah, gonna I'm announce not. it. Yeah, right. Um, so really, well, only- it was like my last two, but that was okay. the, the first of two. So I had like 18 and seven and like. You know, I was playing against these young guys who, you know, and I was like, this is a great way to go out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I killed her so bad. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did that. And then uh, the next thing I played the Clippers and I ended up, for whatever reason, the coach ended up playing us less. He wanted to play his team a bit more of that game. Uh, but I felt really good about just walking away like that, you know, yeah. knowing that I could still play at that level if given the opportunity, uh, but also really feeling good about having gone through what I went through, you know, that last portion of my NBA career and to go out there and like, you know, have a good game. It just was a great feeling. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you came back and then I came back after that, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with my coach over in Japan and they were struggling a bit. (laughs) And he said, Josh, he actually didn't offer the contract to me. He, He asked me about some other players. Okay. And um, I was like, that's a nice contract. Let me see. <laughs> it's like, and he got sucked back And then I got sucked back into oh it. Oh, my god! And so I went, I went over to Japan. I played there this last year. Um, and then my last game uh, was, you know, like April, end of April. And I had a really good game. And once again, I just I let go and played freely and um, knew that it was going to be my last last game, so. So how does it feel? It feels good. Because I remember several years ago, it, it was some sort of documentary. And I think at that point you said, I'm not happy with how things ended. I was still kind of fresh off of the NBA. 
since then I've I've grown a lot. I've learned a lot about myself. I have, you know, played in some really cool areas, met some great people. I mean, my Australia um, experience was amazing. Going over there and meeting people, I have some lifelong friends. Mm. You know, from that experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm good. If I may suggest something, uh, and this is only for you to do with yourself, uh, but it's something that my therapist often tells me to do anytime a chapter closes, but to write a letter to basketball, Mm. just talking about what it meant to you, where it took you and like say your goodbyes to it. Mm. I get so emotional, like even just saying it because it's such a, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a company, a person, experience it's hard to sometimes let go it's hard to get closure because closure is so you want to hold on and you want to like have control over it you know and closure is never it never goes the way we want it hardly ever does Mm. you know i'll try that because it's that's what it is though right it's kind of a relationship yeah yeah for most of my life so yeah yeah i mean since i was what seven so it's almost 30 years. As we close this out, I often ask athletes what kind of advice do they have for others out there in terms of who are making a transition away from basketball. You can answer that, or I would pose, what do you want people to know about Josh Childress? Mm. Nothing. No. <laughs> <laughs> the advice I would give to younger guys or guys just going through a transition would be to start early. You're going to fail at some things, so fail fast and, you know, fall forward into the next one. You know, try a bunch of different different things. You know, I, I tried the venture capital thing for a bit. I tried, you know, I've tried real estate. I've tried, I've thought about franchising. I've tried all, you know, different types of investing and things that I wanted to do. Uh, I never tried coaching, which I don't think I'd be very good at, but <laughs> try everything. Latch on to a few mentors, uh, mentors that'll push you. Step outside of your, your comfort zone. Um, you know, we, we get kind of caught up in, in dealing with only other athletes or basketball players. You know, get to know people outside of your space and um, embrace that it's going to end. You know, it's just a matter of when, you know, and, and try and figure out you know, kind of how to hit the ground running when it does. I'm actually an incredibly goofy person. I'm only that way around people that I, you know, trust and feel good about um, and keep my life private, which is important. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now as I step into this next phase, you know, I'm actually like talking about doing some marketing and branding and, you know, creating content and like stuff that I would never have done before, but I, I feel like it's important that people just get to see me for who I am and, and you know, just get to know me as more than, you know, the guy with the Afro who, you know, had the, the jump shot that they made fun of all the time. Like, you know, I hear that all the time. Like, Oh, you got the shot, Mary. And yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I've heard it before. Okay. <laughs> we don't need to hear your recycled saying. joke. It's, it's, it's trash. I'm just going to kind of continue to let that, that go where it goes, you know, and let people, um, you know, get an understanding for who I really am and what I'm about. So maybe this is a bad question. Why did you decide to? Why, does, yeah. why did you decide to do this? Um, I'm trying to to 
change. I'm trying to change how I approach things. I'm trying to be more open to things like this, you know, and, and um, you know, I don't know if my story will help anybody, but if it does, that would be amazing. And maybe I'm able to connect with people and try and help them in other avenues with, you know, how I deal with mental health or real estate or, you know, professional sports or whatever it may be. Yeah, I'm just trying to be more open to opportunities and, and uh, tell my story. You did today and clearly I, you're on. I don't you talk did. this much. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I kept you here no, for so good. long. Good. But it was it's so good. good because I was like, you have such an interesting story. I feel like people know bits and pieces of you, but they don't know all of you. And I feel like That's now... intentional. So. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show, Josh. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for having me. A big, warm thank you to Josh for, as he said, being more open to things like this and sharing not only his story, but the ups and downs he faced while playing basketball. The fact that he said he usually doesn't talk this much, I hope it means I did an okay job in making him feel comfortable enough to share his journey. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. Feel free to let me know what you took away from today's conversation. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at prim underscore seripipat. The next chapter with Prim Seripipat drops every Wednesday on the Athletic Podcast Network. And wherever you find podcasts.